This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Kentucky has some of the highest opioid overdose death rates in the nation, and the state is getting hundreds of millions of dollars from settlements with pharmaceutical companies to combat the problem. But what's the plan for spending that money? And what's the fate of a proposal to fund research into an illegal psychedelic drug as a possible treatment for addiction? Joining me now to talk about all of this are Northern Kentucky University Vice President of Health Innovation, Valerie Hardcastle. Thanks so much for being here, Valerie. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. Louisville Public Media health reporter Morgan Watkins. Welcome back, Morgan. Hi. Thanks for having me. And People Advocating Recovery CEO Tara Mosley-Hyde. Thanks for being here, Tara. Thanks for having me. Do you have questions or comments? Give us a call at 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. Valerie, help us understand how bad is Kentucky's opioid overdose rate compared to the rest of the country? Well, on a scale of one to pretty bad, it's pretty bad. Mm. Um, We are consistently, I think as far as I've been tracking it, in the top 10 in the nation. Uh, We currently sit, I believe, about fifth, which is where we've been hanging out for the past several years. Um, But yes, we're, we're among the worst, absolute worst in the country. And uh, are there particular parts of the state that have been hit hardest, Valerie? How bad is the problem in northern Kentucky? Do you have a sense of that? Yes, it's actually quite bad. Um, there are pockets. So you would you see a lot of challenges, say, in eastern Kentucky and the rural Appalachian areas. One of the challenges that we have in northern Kentucky, apart from the fact that we do have significant rural areas that very much resemble Appalachia, is that uh, I-75 runs right through northern Kentucky, and that is a prime route for delivering illicit substances from the Texas-Mexico border all the way up to Chicago. And so it's very easy um, to, to get your substance of choice there. Tara, why do you think substance substance use disorder is such a big problem in the state? Well, honestly, I think um, it's really a complex issue, especially as, you know, uh, she just referenced uh, the rural areas and just lack of uh, accessibility. Um, There are provider deserts, especially in Appalachia. um, And then, you know, there's always... uh, uh, provider deserts, but also coupled with um, uh, insurance, um, lack of access points. So if a provider only accepts one type of insurance and you have a different type of insurance, then you have to travel several hours away in order to get access to that treatment. Um, So that also creates a lot of problems and a lot of barriers for folks to be able to access uh, those really critical services. Valerie, you mentioned the interstate as being a reason Northern Kentucky or one of the reasons Northern Kentucky sees problems with substance use disorder around here. Do you have thoughts on on the state as a whole? Do you? I don't know if you've researched that, what you think some of those reasons are. Well, I, I think what you're seeing now really is second and third generation uh, substance use disorder. So there's the story that's been nicely publicized about how this wonder drug came out to help with pain and people who did a lot of manual labor would take it. Then they would subsequently get addicted and then a whole host of challenges uh, fell. And so what you saw was overdose death rates were in, happening to people in their 40s and 50s. Well, that's different now. That most people who are dying now are in their 30s and 40s, which means that they've started using um, in their teens, 
primarily. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing is, unfortunately, in many cases, this multi-generational problem. But I also echo what the other speaker said, is that for many places, we just don't have any boots on the ground to help people. And when you're lacking that, then you can't get help. Yeah. Morgan, how much money will be coming to Kentucky through these settlements with pharmaceutical companies? Uh, a lot of money. It's going to be um, roughly $800 million, but I think there's the potential for more settlement money to come in. Um, and this is going to be over, like, well over 10 years. Like, this is going to be piecemeal over time. Does the state have a clear plan, Morgan, for how to spend that money? What What do you know at this point about how the state might be spending this? This is really an open question. I mean, so far... Um, it's a decision that has to be made both at the state level. There's a commission that looks at how do we want to spend the state government's portion of the settlement money. But then a lot of this money is specifically earmarked for local governments like cities and counties. So this is really um, different. A lot of different governments making these decisions. I know at the state level, they've already uh the state of Kentucky has already invested over 32 million going to things like addiction prevention and treatment initiatives. Um, but this is really, you know, they're just now at the beginning of getting some of this money in and deciding how to spend those first batches of funds. This is really going to be a long-term decision-making process. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how the state of Kentucky plans to spend its opioid opioid settlement money. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or by emailing talk at wvxu.org. Tara, to the extent that you're comfortable, uh, tell us about your experience with substance use disorder. Sure. Um, and, you know, just want to preface that um, I speak openly about my recovery experience, so that's 100% fine. Um, and uh, so I am a person in long-term recovery, um, which means to me I've lived a life of resilience since April of 2011, which uh, I am coming up on uh, lucky number 13 years of my recovery experience. Um, I'm very fortunate um, and lucky that I uh, engaged in uh, a program that was a homeless shelter that offered a recovery program. Uh, I did not go to clinical formalized treatment, um, and that was just my experience. Uh, and, and I'll say this too, I think it's really important that we have this conversation. I came into recovery at 23 years old uh, through a homeless shelter. And um, as somebody who's 23, you know, up until that point in my life, uh, I, the, the narrative and the image of what someone with a substance use disorder or an addiction problem looked like was not a 23-year-old woman uh, who, you know, failed out of college. Um, it was, you know, uh, the older man living under a Vidoc with the long trench coat, Right. Um, so that was the image that I had been impressed upon my, most of my life. And so when, you know, it was presented to me that maybe there was uh, something uh, that I needed to, you know, tackle and kind of look at internally with uh, my substance use disorder, um, I, I was grappling with a cultural narrative that was wrong <laughs> for a number of years, right? Like that's what society had told me, that this wasn't what it was. Um, so, you know, I was very young when I came into recovery and there was a lot of, you know, outside influences that kept telling me that it wasn't that bad. Um, but in reality, it really was. Um, 
So, you know, I, and I, you know, went through that process, um, was able to be in a safe, supported space uh, for an extended amount of time and was able to have the incredible opportunity to find my recovery experience and journey and my pathway forward, which, you know, now led me to coming up on 13 years of my recovery experience and, you know, multiple um, opportunities of development, growth and leadership development and skill building. And you know, I have a double dual master's degree from the American University in public administration and public policy. This is an area that I know that as a country and as a community in the state of Kentucky, as well as, you know, Louisville, uh, my local area, like we need to really look at prevention, understanding what substance use disorder looks like, not just, you know, the stigmatized narrative uh, and understand this is a community response. This is a public health crisis, not a moral question of integrity and value. And the the, the longer that we keep like trying to grapple with that argument, the more lives are going to be in the crosshairs. And so, you know, like just we need to really like come to, to terms with uh, this is a public health crisis that's going to take uh, a response from all all areas working together to collaborate to help move us into a space where we can help people and save lives. Well, congratulations on that 13 years coming up. That really is uh, an impressive story of resilience. Tara, what do you think made the biggest difference for you? People giving me a shot. That, that was it. Um, I came into recovery in 2011, um, which was on the heels of uh, shutting down pill mills in our state. Uh, and Casper, I think, was just got revamped. So there was a lot of things that were happening uh, across the country with really changing this narrative of uh, the opioid crisis uh, as well as like that kind of being fueled uh, in some degree and things shifting from pharmaceutical company to illicit um, like heroin and other uh, sort of substances really coming into Kentucky. Um, so for me, it was when I came in and people like understanding this person has been through a treatment uh, or a recovery experience and um, she is trying to better herself and as long as she's on a path of growth, then we want to help. Mm. And giving people an opportunity to then see that somebody can change, can grow, can be successful. And then when the success actually starts and when uh, people are more visible uh, and they can see that, wow, people change, people grow, people get better. Um, and I think that, and then the, that whole evolution um, catching, you know? Um, so that was it. That was for me. Morgan, I know a state, a Kentucky State Commission had talked about spending millions of dollars, I think it was like $42 million to investigate Ibogaine, um, a psychedelic drug as a treatment for substance use disorder. What's happened with that whole idea? Uh, so that idea to fund research into Ibogaine, that came from the previous head of the state commission that's in charge of looking at how to spend the state government's portion of the opioid settlement money, Brian Hubbard. Um, but since then, we've gotten a new attorney general uh, after last year's election, Russell Coleman, and he appointed a, a new leader. 
for the State Opioid Commission. And, and basically that kind of uh, opened, it's looking like, you know, th- th- that it's not a surefire thing that they're going to fund Ibogaine. You know, um, Russell Coleman uh, has said that he's, you know, open to looking at it, but he's certainly not um, championing it in the way that former Attorney General Daniel Cameron and his selected head of the State Opioid Commission, Brian Hubbard, were. Mm-hmm. And Morgan, can you help us understand just briefly kind of the case that you heard during these hearings, the case for and against Ibogaine? Why were people arguing, hey, we should invest in this as a state? And why were others arguing, don't spend the money that way? Sure. So Ibogaine, you know, it's you can take it to experience like a state of waking dreams. And there's been some evidence that using that with, you know, clinical supervision um, that you can have reductions or even total elimination of addiction withdrawal or craving symptoms. Um, We heard from some folks who testified saying, yeah, that was my experience. I went to, you know, Mexico to to do Ibogaine and and to try that as a treatment. So sort of the argument is basically, hey, let's think outside the box. Let's look at all options to treat this, you know, this really hard public health crisis. Um, But Ibogaine is not without risk. Uh, There's research that shows that it can cause serious health, uh, sorry, serious heart problems. So um, that's an argument against it, as well as just the fact that it's a a long road to getting FDA approval um, for something like Ibogaine. So it's sort of this question of, should we fund research into something that's really a kind of a long-term bet that this could be a helpful treatment, or should we focus on funneling that $42 million instead into, you know, recovery programs that are already on the ground working right now through different approaches. Valerie, what are your thoughts on this drug? Is that anything you've researched, Ibogaine? Have you looked into it? Do you have opinions about about that? Well, it is not my area of expertise, but I will say the fact that it is not FDA approved should raise eyebrows, and I'll just leave it there. Okay, fair enough. Uh Valerie, what has the state done to make treatment more accessible or more affordable? Are there steps that Kentucky has taken either with this settlement money or even before to try to help people get access to the treatment they need? Yes. Well, it is obviously an area of great concern for the Commonwealth. And uh, one thing that they have done is um, do what is called an 1115 Medicaid waiver demonstration project. That's a very long word for saying um, what Kentucky is trying is different ways of funding treatment and access for um, patients with substance use disorder who are on Medicaid. And I know about that because my group is charged with evaluating it. And uh, the hope is that with their new programs and additional funding directed that way, that we'll see a decline. And in fact, I can tell you we have seen a decline um, in that population with the implementation of this program. And if it works, then we can expand it, make it permanent, and so forth. So those are the sorts of initiatives that take place at a statewide level. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned your organization. What's the Institute for Health Innovation doing to really address this problem, which I know could be an hours-long discussion, right. but just, just briefly. <laughs> to nutshell it, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so we have focused our energy primarily in the rural portions of northern Kentucky, um, It's known as the Golden Triangle. It's the area between Cincinnati, Lexington, and Louisville. Um, 
a lot of reason is that um, there's been a lot of federal money devo- devoted rightly to the Delta region, which is just north of Tennessee and part of Tennessee, and to Appalachia, which we are all familiar with, um, but nothing uh, is targeted to this kind of desert area. And for example, when we started working there in Owen County six years ago, um, they have no hospital, no emergency room, no, they had no urgent care. They had one psychiatrist who was there part-time, one part-time social worker who lost their job right when I was getting started. Um, people would have to routinely travel hour and a half to get any sort of specialty care. They had absolutely no treatment for substance use disorder, no recovery support. And so you can envision what it is like if you're isolated. So the, ca- the county is 350 square miles. It's got 10,000 people in it. No Uber, no Lyft, no bus service, no food pantries, no homeless shelters. It's a real challenge. Um, And so we have tried to uh, build an infrastructure, a basic support infrastructure there to help people get the resources that they need. And we do that through care coordinators, and they are the human yellow pages. So if you have an issue, it's their job to know how to connect you with the resources you need, whether it's in county or out of county. We've been blessed to get um, several million dollars from the federal government to help fund these people, to help fund practitioners, to help fund recovery efforts, um, both and prevention efforts in the schools and so forth. So that's really what we focused on doing. And then as people, as we build the infrastructure, people then realize that, as the other caller was saying, recovery is possible. There are things that I can do, and there are resources in place to help me do this. And so we've been able to reach some lives. And and Tara, again, I know this is a, com- a a question that could be a whole conversation, but what kind of difference does that make in communities? I mean, I think we all know how destructive substance use disorder can be for communities. What are what kind of impact does having those recovery resources and and being able to help people? What what kind of impact does that have? Huge. It has huge impact and for a variety of reasons. And I'll try to keep it limited, um, but mainly because the visibility. So people recognizing, wow, there's somebody who's in recovery that is living their life and doing better and is participating in life. I want to I want to do that, too. I want to get better. I want to be better. So the visibility of that and that um um, having the the ability to to see perspective um, that their life could get better and can get better, huge. Mm. Access to resources and getting them connected immediately instead of having them to wait, you know, weeks at a time. Um, there was one point uh, a few years ago where you know you would get put on a waiting list for weeks before you could get into treatment um, due to prior authorization and lots of other yeah. you know challenges because you know beds were limited. Um, which I'm sure is a yeah. much longer conversation. <laughs> right. but, I apologize, uh, Tara. I'll have to stop you there. I've been talking with Northern Kentucky University Vice President of Health Innovation, Valerie Hardcastle, Louisville Public Media Health Reporter, Morgan Watkins, and People Advocating Recovery CEO, Tara Mosley-Hyde. Thanks so much for your time. I'm Lucy May. This is Cincinnati Edition.